Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Last night, President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden took the stage in Nashville for the second and final presidential debate of the 2020 election. The scene was calmer than the first debate, but the contrast in candidates was still clear throughout, like when asked what they would say to Americans on Inauguration Day. Success is going to bring us together. We are on the road to success, but I'm cutting taxes, and he wants to raise everybody's taxes, and he wants to put new regulations on everything. I will say, I'm an American president. I represent all of you, whether you voted for me or against me, and I'm going to make sure that you're represented. I'm going to give you hope. We'll recap the debate and hear your reactions next, after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In contrast to the chaotic first debate, last night Americans heard more substantive answers to questions from presidential candidates, President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, aided in part by time muting of candidates' microphones, which was a new ground rule set by the Commission on Presidential Debates. The candidates faced questions on topics including the fight against COVID-19, race in America, climate change, and national security. And here with me to wade through last night's event, lots to unpack. I want to welcome Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor of Politico. Welcome back, Anita. Thanks for having me back. Glad to have you, and also glad to have our own Marisa Lagos, who is politics correspondent with KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. Good morning, Marisa. Good morning, Michael. And we'll say good morning also to Jane Coaston, who's joining us, senior politics reporter with Vox, and welcome, Jane Coaston. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you all aboard here. And Marisa, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, this was a, a real debate. I mean, an actual debate where they talked about policies. The president had to appear civil, and uh, that was what his advisors apparently were telling him, and he seemed to be able to do that. And uh, Joe Biden, I think, um, really had to come across as being strong and not in any way what he was characterized as by Donald Trump and others, mentally gone and non-compos mentos. Uh, so in effect, it was actually a a rather good debate. Yeah, I mean, gosh, what a what a difference from a couple of weeks ago, right, Michael? Um, yeah, I think that this was a night that went relatively well for both candidates. Um, I could see if you were you know, undecided, but leaning toward one of them that maybe you could have walked away feeling good in that decision. Because as you said, I think Trump held it together and was not on the attack as much definitely did not give, you know, as much specific as Joe Biden on policy. Um, but I think and, and, and I think Biden um, did a good job, a better job, actually, than in the first debate, probably in part because he wasn't being interrupted. But maybe he's heard the calls. I mean, especially on the COVID section, I thought we heard real specificity from him that was lacking in, in previous uh, in the previous debate and in some other conversations. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, you know, I think last time it felt like America kind of lost. And I, I wouldn't say that for last night. 
Well, I also want to give kudos to Kristen Welker. It was a lot easier for her than it was for Chris Wallace, who said he was jealous because she was able to conduct a normal kind of debate. But she yeah, really, she was excellent. She's yeah. been getting high marks in social media and uh, was in many ways uh, exceptional. Uh, I want to bring you into this, Anita Kumar, particularly in terms of um, who might be undecided. There's a very thin number of those who are still in that category, but certainly both candidates were trying to appeal to the key states in terms of the Electoral College, and also uh, Vice President, former Vice President Biden was trying to bring the minorities uh, out who turned out for President Obama, but did not necessarily turn out for Hillary Rodham Clinton. Success on those scores? Yeah, I mean, it's really both of those things, right? They're, they're speaking to their supporters, trying to get beyond that, as you said, very small numbers at this point of people that are undecided. But if you look at the polls, there are actually some people that are leaning one way, still haven't just fully decided and could swing back and forth. Um, it, the, the campaigns have really turned in recent weeks, though, to what you're talking about, which is, you know, people getting people out to vote. You know, a lot of people have voted, but they want to make sure that people are excited enough about them to get out and vote because they might be leaning one way, but then just decide to sit it out. Uh, you mentioned Joe Biden. That was a particular issue four years ago for Democrats. So they really want to make sure that uh, Democrats, even though the party is divided a little bit on, not a little bit, a lot on issues, that they are united behind, you know, Joe Biden and against Donald Trump. So I think that both men had a pretty good performance, definitely better than the first debate. And you could really, really see the contrast on you know, healthcare, the coronavirus, immigration, so many different things that um, if you needed just a little push there, you might have gotten it, whichever person you were leaning towards. And I want to talk about each of those things uh, in seriatim here. But I, first of all, I wanted to, since you're talking about United, Anita, I wanted to mention the fact that there was a clear divide and an important one that I wanted to highlight initially. And uh, let me go to you on this, Jane Coaston. Uh, Jane Coaston with a senior politics reporter for Vox. Because what I'm talking about is the red-blue divide. Uh, let's hear cut three. I don't look at this in terms of the way he does. Blue states and red states. They're all the United States. And that, I think, was quite significant in many ways. Uh, Joe Biden trying to present himself as the president of all of the United States and uh, President Trump uh, really emphasizing the divide between red and blue. In fact, emphasizing it in a way which can only be characterized as false because he was saying that the red states are doing much better under governors uh, that are Republican with respect to COVID than the blue states are, which is simply not true. Right. And I think that Biden made an important point that it's not as if it, it would be better if coronavirus upticks were happening in one particular state over another particular state. But I want to back up for a second, because I think that one of the annoying things that we tend to do on in our industry is whenever this particular president starts talking as if he is a normal Republican or a standard bearer of the Republican Party or even a traditional president, we we posit that as being a return to some bar of normalcy. And I think that that really does a disservice to our listeners and to our readers. You know, The fact that this was not like the first debate is kind of like arguing that, you know, if you go to an amusement park, it's not like Jurassic Park and it does not turn into a bunch of dinosaurs trying to kill you. Like that's not necessarily <laughs> better. It's just more normative. And so I think it's important to say that, yes, this was a better debate, but it was still deeply concerning on a lot of levels, especially with how Donald Trump talked about <clears throat> undocumented children with how we, you know, how the 
conversation about race in America went completely off the rails. And also for the fact that the, the challenge has been is that Donald Trump has spent this entire campaign attempting to activate a, activate a base that is already entirely activated. And I think that you saw that throughout this debate. So I think that while Biden was attempting to make the argument that he would be the president for all states, because being a red or blue state is not a permanent state of mind. We're seeing as states become more conservative or vote more democratic, that that shift can happen as it happens every election. But Donald Trump is laser focused on not just red states, but on particular communities within those red states that favor him. Well, he was trying also, and Marisa, let me go to you on this, uh, trying to certainly paint a picture of uh, Joe Biden as being a socialist, as being a politician. Ironically, I mean, he's been the president for four years, uh, and some think this is a referendum on his presidency. But trying to back him into a corner on the Green New Deal and make, he talked about AOC and three, for example. Um, and to some extent, uh, that was his playbook, and that's the playbook he's been following. Yeah. And, you know, I can't agree enough. I think we need to sort of couch this in like reality, not just the reality that we've come to assume <laughs> under Donald Trump. Um, you know, I thought that was one of Joe Biden's strongest moments of the night when he looked straight at the camera and said, you must be confusing me with somebody else. I beat all those other people. I mean, he was unequivocal. I think he has the permission to do that by the left because they want to see Donald Trump lose so badly. And, you know, I think when it comes to things like yeah, this, this, this very, I mean, it's almost like I get it when you look at the electoral math, but it's it's a little confusing almost to watch the president say things like, you know, attacking how many cases have happened in New York as if he's not the president of this entire nation, right? And so I think that some of those uh, attempts at distancing himself from this coronavirus uh, crisis really fell flat because the truth is he is the president of this entire United States, whether, you know, he likes blue blue jurisdictions or not. Um, and I think Biden, again, really, really parried both those, you know, policy attacks well, but also this idea that he wants to be a president to represent everybody, um, this idea of choosing hope over fear. I mean, I think he really echoed some of the winning strategy from the original Obama campaign in 2008. And um, I can see that that could really resonate with people who are turned off by the president, but have been a little concerned about where the Democratic Party had headed, you know, earlier this year with that primary debate. Well, there's also a great deal of concern about COVID-19. That was the first topic up for discussion. And Anita Kumar, let's hear a cut of Joe Biden's. Uh, and this is cut number five. He says that we're, uh, you know, we're learning to live with it. People are learning to die with it. You folks home will have an empty chair at the kitchen table this morning. That man or wife going to bed tonight and reaching over to try to touch their out of habit where their wife or husband was is gone. Learning to live with it. Come on. We're dying with it. Nita Kumar, that was certainly a moment for Biden, wasn't it? It was. It was actually one of the lines that I, you know, I'm still thinking about this morning. You know, the president has really tried to downplay the coronavirus. He doesn't want to talk about it on the campaign trail. Obviously, he knew it was going to come up, and it was, you know, it was very striking. You had the president continue to downplay the severity, say, you know, the president, the the country's turning a corner, uh, and talking about how we need to open back up. You know, obviously, he's been pushing that because of the economy. Uh, he wants people to get back out there. He wants the economy to return. But you really had a really stark contrast with with Joe Biden saying he's going to push for things like 
mask wearing and dis social distancing and some restrictions. And I thought his response right there was really would resonate with people. It's interesting when both men came out, uh, the president was not wearing his mask. Joe Biden was wearing his mask and he continued to sort of hold it up and remind people about that mask. And I thought also that was something that that would stick with people. There, There is a fundamental dis disagreement on where they are and what their vision is for next year on handle how to handle the coronavirus. And that came up particularly, we're coming up on a break here, but Jane Costa, I want to get you on record uh, with respect to opening up. Yeah, I think that one of the challenges that we've got here is that this entire conversation has been based on a fallacy. There are very few areas that were actually quote unquote locked down. Countries that did lock down are countries like New Zealand. That's not what happened here. And I think that you know the closure of businesses, that, may, that was a very stringent case in a lot of states, but we did not have an entire lockdown. And the idea of opening up is also a fallacy. We'll notice that there are many businesses that have not been able to return, despite the fact that they're open, because people are not going to them. I think the American people have been far more cautious about coronavirus than I think that many members of this government would want us to be. And I think that that really speaks to the elements of Stephen Moore and others who are involved with this administration, who really believe that the best way to handle the economic crisis as a result of coronavirus is through a payroll tax cut, which doesn't really make sense if you're not on a payroll. But I think that Biden was able to speak to the fact that people actually have died. Thousands of Americans have died and thousands of Americans are likely to, and I wish this weren't true, are likely to die over the coming weeks, especially as the weather gets colder and we spend more time indoors. And we'll pick up with this uh, ongoing consideration of last night's debate and we'll hear from you as well, our listeners. You can join us by calling in now at 866-733-6786. That's 866 866- 733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about last night's presidential debate here on KQED Public Radio with Jane Coaston, who is senior politics reporter for Vox, and Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent with KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show, and Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor of Politico. And I want to know your reactions to last night's debate or anything that really stays with you uh, in your craw or in your head or in your heart. Uh, and you can give us a call now at our toll-free number. The number to call is 866-733-6786 and be part of the program. Again, that's toll-free, 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. Let me just read a couple of emails that have come in. Robert writes like a baby who's praised for refraining from throwing his food on the floor. The president is praised for acting like an adult, refraining from constant interruption. And Beth writes, who won the debate? Kristen Welker. If Trump would get off Twitter and behave more as he did in the debate, he probably would win re-election. Uh, one more comment from Matt. The debate was a sad showing. The structure made Trump appear more civil than he is because there's no real time fact-checking. The candidates can lie unchecked, and the voting public believes what they want to believe without checking the facts for themselves. And indeed, there was a lot of misstatement of facts last night, a lot of lying, more of it coming from President Trump. I think that's a given. Um, and there were a lot of charges going back and forth about taxes and about uh, the New York Post story on uh, Hunter Biden, and uh, in fact, at one point, uh, 
President Trump said, uh, who's, who's the guy who's getting 10% here? We can talk about all that in the course of this uh, discourse of ours, but there was also a lot of talk about China and North Korea, and I wanted to follow the trajectory of the debate itself because they wound up talking about family next, and let's hear cut number one. He doesn't want to talk about the, the, the substantive issues. It's not about his family and my family. It's about your family. And Trump said he was treated very badly by the IRS. The day before, he said he was treated very badly by Leslie Stahl. And uh, then we got into taxes. And, uh, and Marisa, he was talking about paying millions in taxes and maybe $750 was a filing fee, or he seemed to intimate that on some level. Uh, from there, we went to health care. Yeah, it, it was a little confusing on the tax thing, um, which, you know, is sort of in line with how he has talked about this in the past. I mean, he seemed to agree with that 750 number in an interview recently. He sort of rejected it last night. He said he prepaid tens of millions or billions. I mean, he, I think he maybe was referring to this idea of offsetting past losses, but he was a acting as if he had prepaid taxes and didn't know it, which raises sort of other questions. Um, yeah, I think it's an understatement to say that that Trump lied more than Biden. I mean, literally, the, uh, I, I know the fact checker on CNN said that that even though Trump appeared better behaved last night, he actually lied more than he did in the first debate, uh, maybe because folks got a chance to finish their own sentences. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that moment you just played with Biden trying to pivot and saying, let's talk about your family, does really sum up the, some of the big differences in these candidates from a political perspective. Trump, after four years in Washington, is continuing to, you know, characterize himself as this outsider. Um, you know, he he attacked Biden for that line, saying, look, he doesn't want to talk about, you know, you. He's, he's a typical politician. Um, I would bet money that the reason Biden is doing that is that that's what polls well for him, that that's what people want to see um, who are not supporting Trump. And so I think that I actually think that that was a very telling moment just in terms of the different styles of these two men and and really the position that Trump continues to try uh, to, to really put himself in. And, um, you know, I think on a lot of this, what we saw was really just the president even though he was more subdued in his tone and manner, really swinging wildly with accusations that were, um, you know, are, are demonstrably false against uh, Biden and his family. Well, on that note, I wanted to actually have our listeners hear uh, an exchange between Biden and Trump because I wanted to get to health care here. And uh, let's go to cut six, Danny. We have to provide health insurance for people at an affordable rate. And that's what I do. President Trump, Excuse me, he was there response. for 47 years. He didn't do it. <laughs> he was now there as vice president for eight years. And it's not like it was 25 years ago. It was three and three quarters. It was just a little while ago, right? Less than four years ago. He didn't do anything. He didn't do it. Nita Kumar, that seemed to be another line of the president's attack. Uh, Joe Biden could have done and didn't do. Yeah, I mean, we heard him say that throughout the debate. I mean, we've heard him say that repeatedly on the campaign trail, that line about, you know, he's been in office 47 years and he could have done it. What I thought the president did yesterday was talk a little bit more about, well, you were in office for eight years. You know, you were with, you were the vice president with President Obama. He hit that a little bit sharper. But I'm glad you played the healthcare thing because that is one of the most confounding uh, issues because the president has offered and Republicans have offered, uh, said they've offered, they said they would offer a health care plan for basically four years. The president's been saying that for four years. And here we are 
you know, in October of his of this year, this fourth year, where they really don't have a plan. Uh, they haven't introduced a plan, but keep saying they're going to introduce a plan. So this is a huge contrast. You know, the president wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and Joe Biden's talking about how he would take affordable the Affordable Care Act and uh, add the public health option to it uh, and make it change uh, Obamacare. He called it Biden care, which I guess he's mentioned a few other times, but I haven't heard that uh, phrase before. So uh, there was a there was a contrast there. And let me go to you again, uh, Jane Coaston, and let's talk about something that you raised before race and how it came up. Uh, that was the next topic, in fact, that was uh, broached in the debate yesterday. Uh, one of the things that seemed particularly evident in that argument was those 500 some children, uh, migrant children that uh, uh, were separated from their families uh, that uh, Vice Pre former Vice President Biden was hitting hard on. Uh, but again, uh, President Trump's response to that was, uh, well, Obama administration put kids in cages, too. Right. It's interesting how much of this campaign has been Trump attempting to behave as if he is not the, the president of the United States, and in some cases as if Joe Biden is already president or has been president this entire time. Because the, you know, to quote a internet meme of two Spider-Men pointing at each other, arguing that you did it too does not make one of those better, as anyone who has ever parented a child or perhaps a small dog would know. But I think that that really gets at something else that's interesting, which is that in 2016, the immigration issue was top of mind for many voters, or they said it was top of mind for many voters, but it dropped off in 2018. We've seen it continue to drop off. While at the border, children are still being separated from their, their parents and have been separated from their parents. And we're seeing an increase in number of whistleblowers talking about the treatment of women um, in immigration holding facilities. So I think it's fascinating that this issue that was used as a red hot poker against Trump's base in 2017, 2018, if you remember the caravans, um, I found it interesting that this became something that Trump ap apparently wanted to foist off responsibility for, mm -hmm. as if the immigration restrictionists that he relied on in 2015, 2016, he doesn't need them anymore. And Jane, I'd like to get your response to uh, a remark that the president made that has received a good deal of attention. Uh, we had an African-American moderator, Kristen Welker, and here's what the president said in cut number two. As far as uh, my relationships with all people, I think I have great relationships with all people. I am the least racist person in this room. Jane, thoughts? <laughs> I mean, it's just like, when you think of race, racism as a a character flaw and not an actually observable phenomenon. I think that that's what you get, you get here, where it becomes that being racist is an insult and not a descriptor. I mean, that's just, it's a clearly, this is the same person who wanted to bring back the death penalty for the Central Park Five, the same person who has winked and nodded at every group that appears to be supportive of him, while also arguing for the, you know, the, passive genocide of non-white people as has happened in 2015, 2016, and 2017. And I think it's really indicative of how he recognizes that being racist would be bad, but doing racist things, that, that's a different thing entirely. That's, that's something that might be even be good. What about, uh, let me go to you on this, Anita Kumar, the president bringing up the fact that uh, back in 1994, the crime bill that uh, 
then uh, former Vice President Biden was essentially really behind in a significant way had to do with ultimately locking up a lot of black people. Yeah, I mean, it, it was an interesting contrast there because both men have done things and said things, uh, you know, in their past uh, that a lot of people would say shouldn't be done today. You know, Biden, uh, when he was in the primary, fighting in the primary, you know, got a lot of criticism for that 1994 bill that really helped lead to over-incarceration and things, you know, policies that they are trying to unwind today. Uh, but the difference, I think, is, you know, Joe Biden has said, well, uh, he here are the ways we can address that. He has talked about that um, and and talked about, you know, things that can change now. He has acknowledged that in the primary. You know, Donald Trump is still talking about, uh, you know, talking about protesters and uh, what's going on right now. And he's trying to paint himself as this law and order president. So he's not really saying here's what needs to be done. He did mention that he signed that criminal justice reform bill, uh, which he did, um, but it doesn't solve the problem of our over-incarceration. Uh, it, it deals with some of that. So there's still a long way to go. And I think what you saw was Joe Biden talking about some of the ways forward, and I'm not sure Donald Trump did that. Again, Nita Kumar is White House correspondent and associate editor of Political. Let me bring a caller on apropos of what we're talking about here. John joins us from Richmond. John, good morning. John, are you with us? Panel. Yeah. Can you hear yeah. Me? yeah, now I can. Go ahead, please. Okay, great. Uh, what you just spoke on as far as the crime bill, uh, I'm an independent <clears throat> voter, and, you know, and I haven't really decided, made my mind up yet, but what resonated with me was that crime bill, how it put a lot of African-American males behind bars, and that affected the black family. So... Uh, I just wanted to add my two cents in, and I would weigh that as I vote. Thank you. Okay, I thank you for that comment. And again, uh, we will indeed uh, hear from more of our listeners. But uh, I was struck, uh, let me go to you on this, Marisa Lagos, by uh, Vice President Biden talking about over 1,000 clemencies and 38,000 reduced prison sentences and mandatory uh, sentences with respect to trying to see to it that uh, those who were guilty of drug crimes, uh, did not go to jail, but into rehabilitation. Uh, there was a, a good deal of effort on his part to, again, separate himself from what, well, what that caller just uh, expressed his concern about. Right, which happened 25 years ago and was overwhelmingly supported by both parties. I mean, I, I'm a little baffled by this conversation. And, um, you know, I, I think it clearly has some power if, if folks like that caller are, are weighing it against Joe Biden. But I think you need to look at what has happened in the last 10 years, let's say. And um, yes, the, the Trump administration did push through some legislation. Um, but when it comes to the actions of their Justice Department in reversing many of the changes that um, specifically were aimed around uh, limiting, you know, the number of black and brown people, things like, you know, disparities in drug sentencing that Obama and Biden worked on, um, it's pretty it, it's pretty remarkable to me that Trump is is being able to frame himself um, in so many ways as, as somebody who's done so much um, for this issue, because when you look at his rhetoric over things like police reform, I mean, it's so far on the other side. And, um, you know, I think it's it, it's it, it speaks to 
some of Trump's talent as a politician. I mean, I often feel like I'm watching kind of through the looking glass here, like everything he's accusing Biden of is actually stuff he's done. If, you know, going back to the family separation conversation, he didn't deny that they did it. He lied and said that his, you know, his administration is trying to reconnect these 550 or so kids with their families. They have gone to court repeatedly and said, that's not our problem. Um, And instead he said, well, you built the cages. I mean, which is not an answer to the fact that we know that his administration pushed a policy that was not just had the effect of separating these kids from their families, but that was the goal, right? And so, uh, yeah, it's it's a Give it a good sigh, Marisa. (laughs) It's just a little baffling to me because I do think you really need to look more closely at what Obama and Biden did during their time around criminal justice, and and you will find that it is far uh, sort of beyond, I think, much of what we've seen out of this administration. Um, And and again, I just think that the, the, you know, what we're seeing right now in California, Michael, you and I have talked about this at length, is a real reversal of that tough on crime push that we saw in the mid-90s, which again was a bipartisan effort, Republicans, Democrats, um, and, and really in, in many cases was not opposed, I think, as, as Biden brought up, um, by African-American leaders and others um, at the time. And, and I think that we're having a real reckoning now in California and, and to some extent nationally. Well, let me get a caller on here. Luis joins us. He wants to talk about kids in cages. Luis, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to talk about how during the portion of immigration and racism, to me, it showed a stark difference between Trump and Biden. Biden was able to admit in the past that he's failed in regards to the crime bill and spoke truthfully about how America as a nation has never lived up to its ideals. It shows that he understands where America fails. And to me, it gives hope that at least progress can be made. Also, when asked about children in cages, Trump was blaming Biden and Obama for starting the policy. Biden said, but you are the one, but you are separating kids from families. And Trump just responded, good. To me, it highlighted what Biden said at the very end, that our country's morality is really on the line. I'm a Democrat, and I don't think Biden is perfect, but at least he gives some hope. Yeah, thank you for that, Luis. Uh, In fact, I'm looking at a comment here, and Jane uh, Costa, let me go back to you. A listener writes, so... What are your guest feelings about when Biden pointed out that the children were separated from their parents to dissuade people from coming into the U.S. illegally? And Trump replied, good. I think that it's worth noting that there was some pushback. And I'd, I'd want to go back and double check this, the uh, transcript because some people were saying that what Trump actually said was go ahead to the moderator. So I just want to be clear. I'm not sure. But I think it's indicative of this idea that the cruelty is indeed in some ways the point. But I want to go back to something important here. Did anyone else notice that much of the discussion about African-Americans in this country throughout this debate was related purely to criminal justice reform? Mm -hmm. The majority of African-Americans, like myself, are not in prison, have never been in prison. We do many things outside of the walls of prisons and jails and criminal justice reform, you know, outside of penitentiaries. And I think it really is indicative of our our particular American moment that the way to talk about race in America, um, though I think the moderator did a terrific job talking about how to do this more fulsomely, is through the lens of criminal justice reform, I, you know, through a particular system with which millions of Americans of all colors have experience with. But for many African-Americans, their experiences of systemic racism, individualized racism, 
or how their race is perceived more generally is often in areas that are outside of dealing with police or are in areas in which police become involved for no real apparent reason. So I think it, it's important to note here that how we even talk about this issue and the racialization of criminal justice reform, an issue that is important to white Americans and to non-white Americans alike. You know, I'll, I'll remind others of the case of Daniel Shaver, who is shot to death for, by police while, while sobbing in the fetal position on a hotel floor. I think it's worth talking about the racialization of this conversation that seems to be happening on both sides. I think that's an excellent point. I think also you could say racialization was also uh, indicated by all the discussion of, uh, of, of migrants uh, tied in with, uh, I suppose, what you could call brown identity. Um, and in fact, I was very struck when the president said something about the lowest IQ oh people coming into this country. It reminded me about yeah. his remark about, about uh, rapists. Um, we're coming well, no, up Michael, on a... he, he yeah, said that only the lowest IQ people would show up for their immigration hearings, yeah. which is a blatant lie. Most people do show up. And I just thought it was head scratching that you would want to alienate so many people with that kind of remark. Well, uh, that's happened before and in many respects. Uh, well, I mean, remember about uh, uh, grabbing them by the whatever. Um, we could just go through the list. They become maybe too normative. That's the problem. We'll continue our discussion. We'll hear from more of you. And uh, again, we're talking about last night's presidential debate with Anita Kumar, Marisa Lagos, and Jane Coaston. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Here's what's coming up in our second hour this morning with Mina Kim, Julian Castro, former HUD secretary and former Democratic presidential candidate, joins us to share his thoughts on the election, last night's debate, and Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. And we'll discuss a new San Francisco program that will take psychiatric and substance abuse crisis calls out of the hands of police. And to listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about last night's presidential debate with Jane Coaston of Vox and Marisa Lagos of KQED and Anita Kumar of Politico. And let me bring a caller on. Kathleen joins us. Kathleen, good morning. Hi, good morning. I'm Kathleen from Martinez. And I was calling. I was surprised that the debate went on because I understood that the first lady had had a cough and was unable to attend one of the rallies. And that was just a few days before the debate. So that would have put him in contact with her. I was a bit surprised that the, that the debate went on as a result of that, uh, because we also don't know her status in relationship to whether or not she turned negative in terms of her testing. And then secondarily, it seemed as if his color went very poor at different times during the evening. And I was surprised somebody didn't say, Mr. President, your color is very poor. You don't feel, do you feel very good? You look like you might not feel well. Somebody draw attention to that. And then lastly, I think that the lying is so, so pervasive. It is just uh, unbelievable. It's like he makes up a story for everything to fill in what he wants, to, wants it to be. And uh, sometimes they call that confabulation. But indeed, it just is very pervasive lying. And to continue to repeat what he says without having the fact check first and having that out there is what is really the fact. And then what he says, I think, would be really helpful to me to see that more often than all these other things, uh, to really say that he's lying all the time to the American people. Thank you. Thank you for those comments, Kathleen. It's good to hear from you. And uh, Nita Kumar, what do you think about 
Uh, we keep hearing that maybe we should do fact-checking in real time, and all kinds of proposals have been floated by, but yep. uh, where are we? It's, We're sort of where it, we've always been. Yeah, it's a great point and one I've been hearing about for, well, for years. But really, when we have these debates, you really think about that and hear about that. You know, people wondering if these debates are even relevant. And, and you know, there's two things that come to mind on this. One is what this caller just raised. You know, unless the moderator or some there's some way to fact check in real time, you know, it does do a disservice to put out information that's not true or not accurate. And so I've heard so many people talk about that. Is there a way to get at that? But you're right. We're sort of back where we are now. Obviously, moderators in some ways try to push back um, on the candidates or try to try to try to ask or, or say what the truth is, but it's very difficult to do that in this short period of time where they're trying to get so many questions in. You know, the other thing that people have criticized about the debates is, you know, a, a third possibly of the people that are going to vote in this election have already voted. Um, you could argue this is just way too late. And if they are going to do these kinds of debates, they should be way earlier. Now, I know this year is different because of coronavirus and more people are voting early and by mail and all that sort of thing. But if so many people are voting early, it just does seem like all these are very, very late. Yeah, 50 million people have voted already. We have to sort of put that into the equation here. Let me read some emails that are coming in. Tom says, I didn't see anything last night that would change the trajectory of this campaign. Another listener writes, and we're back to fact-checking and uh, lying. Uh, this listener says, I'd l like to see the media make a much bigger deal of Trump's lying. This lying is unacceptable, but is now almost considered normal. And Lori writes, uh, I was amazed by the number of lies coming from Trump almost every time he spoke. Perhaps another change to the debate format is adding live fact-checking at the bottom of the screen. And uh, let me bring another caller aboard here. Ryan joins us next. Ryan, welcome. Hi, good morning, Bay Area. I'm calling from San Francisco. And uh, just two things. One is, you know, when you look at the raw politics of it, Donald Trump has an amazing way of winning certain rounds of the debate. But I think where Joe Biden showed his strong point last night is finishing his punches, finishing his ideas, finishing his comments. And uh, so that's that's an important nuance because some voters just are looking at who's performing better in the debate. But the other thing I want to caution against, particularly in the liberal establishment, is fortifying ourselves with the whole idea of smartness. And it's like, you know, I see on Twitter, people are like, ooh, well, Donald Trump this and Donald Trump that. And it's like we make ourselves feel better because it's supposedly obvious that he's the bad guy. But there are still millions of voters who are going to do what's smart to them, and that's still voting for him. So it's not enough to be smarter. We have to get in the ring in the same way. And uh, so that's my two cents. All right, Ryan, I thank you for that call. And I'm going to read a tweet from a listener named Eric who writes, Trump acts like he's not the current leader of this country. He complains that we need to get our economy going, uh, but has no plan for opening up the country or opening schools safely. You need to lead by example and show empathy, not whine. Uh, one of the probably best lines of uh, Vice President Biden's along those lines was when he talked about uh, no plan for COVID and no plan for, an, I mean, he said, remember the, there was supposed to be a plan for an infrastructure too. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering actually, if we can move on to climate change, because uh, that was a central piece of last night's uh, debate and a very important part of it, certainly. Um, Vice President Biden emphasizing the existential dilemma we are in now with climate change. And uh, 
seeing the vast difference between these two candidates in terms of where they stand. And uh, if I could go to you, Jane Coaston, uh, I think uh, when President uh, Trump said we're doing an incredible job environmentally, um, I think there are many people who had to kind of gasp. Uh, I mean, a president who uses a lot of misstatements of facts and, so, and lies and so forth, but incredible job based on what? Yeah, it's really unclear because I think that so much of what Trump has done is that he recognized what I think a lot of politicians have perhaps always wanted to do but have never actually done, which is that if you just lie, you can say whatever you want. So, for example, Trump will say something like, oh, we have the cleanest water and the cleanest air, when that's just blatantly untrue. We've seen time and time and time and time and time again how um, oil and gas manufacturers and refineries have been favored over the communities often that they're very much next to, which actually came up in the debate. And so I think that Trump has, his entire climate change plan is just to benefit um, big time manufacturers, even big time manufacturers that they themselves are attempting to get out of this industry because they see the writing on the wall. But I think Trump has recognized that if you just lie, you can say whatever you want. You don't have to fit a, you know, a square peg in a round hole if you just decide that both the square and the hole are round. And so I think that, that that's something that is really interesting about part of this debate is because I think that climate change is one of those issues where the people who are particularly motivated by it and the people who are particularly unmotivated by it are both speaking to the edges of their own communities and that leaves a vast middle of people who are concerned about it but it's not one of their top concerns but that's not to say that they're not concerned so i think it's challenging when you're dealing with one person who's attempting to operate within the actual strictures of what climate change might mean or require and one person who's entirely untethered from those requirements well in fact marisa lagos uh, the president was once again trying to uh, link joe biden to bernie sanders and to what we could call, I suppose, the more progressive side of the Democratic Party or the farther left side of the Democratic Party and uh, talking about um, charging that uh, Biden wanted to spend $100 trillion. Uh, I'm not sure where that figure came from, but basically trying, <laughs> oh, yes. to, trying to tie him to the Green New Deal. And yeah. <laughs> one thing where I think the vice, uh, where President Trump actually probably scored some points, though, was on fracking because... Mm -hmm. He talked directly to Texas and Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania is crucial in the Electoral College. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, he's going to stop uh, fossil fuels. He's going to stop coal was probably implicit in that as well. And um, uh, he's not the presidential candidate that you want for your own interests. Yeah. And I mean, if you looked at Fox News this morning, that was leading their coverage of this, right? This idea that, um, you know, Biden wants to do away with the oil industry. Um, I mean, clearly, it's more nuanced than that, right? I mean, and Biden tried to get at that, this idea that it's a transition over time and that, that essentially, you know, any expert would agree that, you, yeah, you can't just go in and shut down an industry without trying to replace it. Um, I thought... You know, that was a challenging part for Biden. I know that the Trump campaign is making hay of this in those swing states. But I also thought there was another really strong moment for Biden. And again, it's when he made it personal, when he when he was being asked about pollution um, and, you know, these these um, factories and, and processing plants that abut neighborhoods. And he talked about his own experience growing up in a place like that. Um, and, and it really did show just, you know, I think the difference between them in terms of Biden trying to build a campaign around empathy and, 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 and in many ways the opposite from Trump. Um, you know, and I think to an earlier caller's point, Michael, 
it's hard to cover this. It is because the president does lie constantly, right? I mean, this is not that's not a policy um, sort of disagreement. That's a, a fact. Um, but I think within the context of a debate, it's very difficult. I think this is one of the reasons that you know something like the Savannah Guthrie interview um, is 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 it is I wouldn't call it an easy lift, but an easier one for the person um, in the moderator chair because you can just go after Trump. And I think that there's this feeling and I know there's been some good writing on this uh, among the media that in a debate, you have to have a one for one. You can't ask Trump a question about kids in cages and not ask, you know, uh, Biden a question about deportations. Well, I mean, some of the things that have happened in this administration are so out of the norm that it's not a totally it's not completely balanced to, to be doing that every time. And I think it does give us this sort of false equivalency um, when it comes to both policy and these sort of just outrageous statements the president makes. Let's hear from another caller. We'll go to Mike next. Mike, thank you for waiting. Join us. Hey, thanks for um, for having me on. I really enjoy the discussion. Hey, uh, one of the things I was remarking to the phone screener was how the uh, mic cut really changed the dynamics of the um, debate. And I thought that that was a really positive change. And so that's my first comment. And my second comment is, you know, we talk about how hard it is to live fact check. What if we were to just uh, film these or record these uh, debates and then overlay fact checking? And just the threat of having that happen would probably change the dynamics of the speakers. Um, and I thought that that might be kind of an interesting idea to throw out there. Well, Thanks. I'm glad you threw it out and I thank you for it. And uh, let me go back to this uh, whole question of environment and climate change uh, with you, Anita Kumar. I was. Uh, struck by the whole debate on fracking because uh, Joe Biden said he only uh, was talking about not having fracking on public lands. Uh, but Trump seemed absolutely certain that he had said he would in the campaign even uh, to try to get the Democratic nomination that he had come out against fracking. Do we know um, where because they were talking even about putting it on the website and so forth. Do we know where that is? Yeah, I don't know, actually. Maybe the, uh, someone else does know. But I do know that the Trump campaign and the president have been talking about this for a while. I was just in Pennsylvania and that with with the president, that's one of their key uh, issues there. I mean, he talks a lot about that there. So you're you're exactly right. It, they're looking at those specific things. And, and immediately after the debate, they felt like that was one of their victories and they wanted to talk more about that. And I don't actually know where that was, uh, what the vice president said he has said though, uh, moving a gradual move away from some of these, um, you know, some of some of these things like fracking um, to go in another direction. But whether he's actually flip flopped, I don't know the answer to that. Well, the vice president said, I would transition. Uh, right. And about I think some of it was around his comments earlier that he would ban fracking on federal lands. That yeah, is that's, what, that, he, yeah. he did specify that. Yeah, that's what I, that. I mentioned. Yes, yeah. that's exactly yeah. right. Sorry. I mean, there is a big difference there in how they're approaching it. I mean, the Democrats and particularly Joe Biden has said from the beginning this transition that you're talking about that things can't you know and they they have said that things can't be done uh, you can't move away from things in overnight it has to be a, a, a change over time on how the United States deals with its energy policy. I want to read some emails that are coming in here. David writes there's a section of Trump supporters that seem to support him because Trump expresses opinions of a belligerent male. Misogyny is a powerful uniting theme among Trump supporters. Another listener says, um, and let me go to you on this, uh, Jane, if I may, uh, Jane Coston again with a senior politics reporter for Vox. Uh, can you speak to Trump's comment about Black Lives Matter? His message was one of ignorance focusing on the pigs in a blanket line. 
Yeah, it's also, um, I wrote something this week on how Trump's entire experience, even of his own base or of America, is based entirely on the internet. So because someone recorded video of a chant, and let's keep in mind, that chant was issued at one protest six years ago. Uh, that's something that he has repeated a time and time and time again, which if you use that metric, every single Trump rally is the one time that there was a Trump rally in which someone, uh, which he said that um, someone should be beaten up during a rally, if you remember that from 2015, 2016. And I think it's really indicative of his understanding of this, if he, of this entire movement or this understanding. And I find it, we talked a little bit about criminal justice reform, but I found it particularly telling that Trump at the one hand can be talking about that with Black Lives Matter and also his own Justice Department is saying that qualified immunity is here to stay and actually we need more policing and harsher policing and more benefit of the doubt for police officers while also arguing simultaneously that they are you know, the criminal justice reform administration. And Marisa Lagos, uh, let me go back to the caller, Mike, and get your reaction to what he was bringing up. Mike from Santa Clara was pointing out how Mike silencing changed the dynamics, and why not tape debates with fact-check overlay? Oh, I don't think this president would go for that at all. Um, I mean, look, I, I think the entire debate system is worth a serious conversation after this election. Um, there's obviously a lot of criticisms from both parties about the Commission on Presidential Debates. I think... Um, more substantive ones often from the Democrats. I think a lot of the attacks have been really aimed from Trump's campaign at, at delegitimizing the debate in case he didn't do well. Um, but the truth is, it, yeah, it's. I don't think it's a great system. I think we touched on earlier the fact that, you know, tens of millions of Cal um, of Americans have already voted and, and this is coming, you know, less than two weeks before actual election day. Um, but I, I also think the truth is that even if Trumpism is here to stay, um, in many ways he is a unique person and, and politician, and we have not seen, um, with the exception, I think, of some like House candidates who are on the fringes of the Republican Party, this type of behavior from most other politicians in this kind of format. Well, I'm going to read a couple of uh, comments that are coming in about the format and the debate per se. Brian writes, how can we take suggestions about how to improve the debate format for the next time? Seriously, we've had 30 years of debate quality spiral downward as it evolved into a stage for corporate media personalities like Trump. Bring back the League of Voters debates. <laughs> and Jeff writes, debates and campaigns are not transparent or about the issues. These debates are, and uh, rallies are just propaganda. How can we change this for future years? That's probably a whole program in and of itself. <laughs> I mean, but I, Michael, I, I would encourage people to go back and watch those town halls from last week. I, I think that in some ways those were much more telling about both candidates and you and you got into some deeper yeah. policy on those. Yeah, I, and uh, I would echo that. I think also um, one of the things that's been sort of weighing on me, and uh, maybe we could wrap with this, is the fact that we've got about 11 days to go until this election. And uh, there's uh, Jake Tapper was making this point, and I thought it was a very important point. Um, there's a lot of ugliness on social media. There's stuff that's just disgraceful and, and shameful and horrible. And um, we have to take that into consideration, too, when we think about ongoing presidential elections or, for that matter, any elections. Uh, the, the thing that struck me about also about last night's debate in terms of politics was a couple of times uh, Trump managed to bring up the House and we have to get the House uh, involved and took shots at Nancy Pelosi, uh, probably doing that out of uh, a certain loyalty to his uh, his party, which it is now, it's his party. But I certainly wanted to um, 
conclude here with at least putting those two things out for people to consider and think about. That is the importance of uh, really being aware of all the stuff that's out there, the propaganda that's out there, and trying to make for better debates and better kind of civil debates. Um, we have them here on the forum program, and we have them here on KQED, and I take a great deal of pride in that. And again, uh, kudos to Kristen Welker. Um, Marisa, you've had a number of debates like me that you've moderated, and uh, you can say, Worst I think, like I Worst job in journalism. <laughs> well, you know, I think it takes a great deal of skill to uh, often sit there and go through uh, those kind of debates uh, the way she did. And uh, again, hats off to her. And hats off to those citizens who are really working hard on behalf of either candidate with the belief that this is a fair system and will somehow work out to the advantage and benefit of the American voters. Thank you, Jane Coston of Vox, and thank you, Marisa Lagos of KQED, and thank you, Anita Kumar of Politico. And thank you to all who are behind the scenes here, forums produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Larberg, Anita Prell, uh, Ariana Prell, excuse me, and Blanca Torres. And Susan Britton, senior editor is Dan Zoll, and our engineer is Danny Bringer. Intern is Jameson Weiss, executive editor Ethan Tovin Lindsay, chief content officer Holly Kernan, and for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, I thank you. Stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.